Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 54, and I'm Roger Peng from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. Before we start the show, we just want to give a shout out to two of our supporters on Patreon. Uh, they are Chris Rigdon and Miranda Sinnott Armstrong. Uh, we thank them both for supporting us through our Patreon site, which is at patreon.com slash nssdeviations. If you want to support Not So Standard Deviations uh, on Patreon, there are three levels at which you can support us. The $1 an episode level gets you a shout out uh, on the on the podcast at some point in time. Uh, the $2 an episode level gets you a not-so-standard deviations hex sticker uh, and a little note from Hillary. And the $3 per episode level gets you the sticker plus uh, access to our outtakes uh, on the Patreon site. Thanks to all of our supporters on Patreon for helping us to make this podcast. So, um, do you want to start with, we'll do, do a little follow-up to begin with? Sure, yeah. So, I gave my talk this week. The one that you so oh, right. graciously helped me out with. Yes. And how'd it and go? And it went well, I have to say. Um, you know, this institute, this is the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute uh, here in Melbourne. And uh, it's, uh, you're, I think you probably have a <laughs> closer connection to it than I would in the sense that you've actually done like computational biology in the past. Um, <laughs> the, so the, bio, yeah. the bioinformatics group kind of invited me out and... And it was they had it was a great showing, and uh, I talked about this you know blameless post postmortem stuff and kind of learning from data analysis, and they seemed to like it <laughs> to, nice. to my surprise. Yeah, did you include an example of your own? You know, I didn't in- <laughs> because there, there, the problem was that there like ones that I could remember examples that I could remember is still like either were still like unresolved or they they're still like not concluded yet. Um, mm-hmm. Or they involved, like, many people that I felt like I needed to ask before I talked about it. Yeah, I can understand that. And then, like, and then ones that would have been long in the past, I uh, didn't remember. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I, like, I remember there was, like, a thing that happened, but, like, I couldn't, like, there wasn't enough detail there. So, I, I don't know, I didn't, I struggled with that a little. I did want to have an example, but I just, uh, I couldn't come up with, like, a, like a nice, like, a, a, good, a, de- a compelling story out of it, I think. Maybe I'll try a little harder next time. Yeah. Well, actually, that kind of brings that brings to light another process thing in blameless postmortems, which is that you're supposed to keep a record of the entire discussion and decision making process. So you reconstruct the timeline, you record all the various ideas for how to you know fix the process, and then you record which one you decide to do so that you have this, you know, document um deposition if you will <laughs> for what all went wrong and what you want to do differently in the future which would be really helpful yeah for like sharing uh ideas like you're saying i think the issue is that i mean i think my understanding is that that needs to occur like as soon as possible after the event right yeah exactly well i mean after yeah once the event's done and you're not in fire you're not putting out fires but you want to implement the solution. Right. Because you need to kind of, while mem- people's memories are fresh, like they can remember what happened and when it happened. Right. Um, but unfortunately, like that, <laughs> I was thinking of like events from years ago and like I just couldn't remember the details. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's actually, it's funny because that's one of those things you don't, I think if you want to be a really skilled uh, teacher, and actually, so I was at a conference. Um, was it two weeks ago? Yeah, two weeks ago um, called Data Day Texas. It's not day to day. It's data space day. Okay. <laughs> Texas. Okay. <laughs> I ran into that. Anyway, um, and Albert Kim was there discussing pedagogy and what he had learned from teaching introductory stats. And he talked about that issue that once once you're an expert, it's very, very hard to go back and remember what stumbling blocks you ran into when you were learning something. Um, and I think it's along the same lines. Like you learn a new process, you implement it, and then you start to forget what it felt like to discover that new process originally. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it is along those lines. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. And his, I mean, his solution, quote unquote, was to have students work together a lot. So he said every class he would only lecture for about 20 minutes and then there would be activities where they work in groups of four um, and that way they can help each other with, you know, oh, you didn't close your parentheses there. This was this is how you solved this error message, et cetera. Um, 
which I think is a really good idea. Um, but to rewind, I, I also wish I had a record of like all the problems I ran into, <laughs> like <laughs> super early days when I was writing code and literally in Google Docs. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the best <to> editor. <laughs> it's like so embarrassing to say that out loud, but it's totally true. Well, let me ask you this then. Does this suggest that you should make a record of decisions going forward? That way you don't have to bother to remember. Yeah, I mean, I mean, depending on your goals, but yeah, I think I think if your goal is to help other people learn, which hopefully lots of people have that goal. I, I guess I'm not going to say everyone, but really everyone should have that goal cuz even if you're really like hyper focused individual contributor, I see like just sitting at your computer all day, you're still eventually going to want to train other people to use your stuff and you know, like there's, it's very rare to work in a complete island, right? Right, yeah. You know, I did have this, I did have this idea recently, actually, not for something that went wrong, but just like to, as for the, like the, for developing a case study of like, of research paper. Um, so I just, we just, I just published a paper like at the end of last year. And as, as we were like working on that project, I thought in my mind, okay, when it's all done, I'm going to like go back and talk to everybody about all the various decisions that we decisions that we made right mm -hmm. and like and just kind of reconstruct the process as like a case study not so much as like a failure right um mm -hmm. right. and because uh, i thought like you very seldom get access to that kind of information most of the time you just get like the paper and that's it right you get like a, a cross-section in time basically um and so but you know, and then so after it was published i was like okay i'll wait till it's published that way it's all done you know and then we can kind of go back and um but then afterwards i was kind of like well i don't know how interesting that's gonna be <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like because i don't know it was a relatively it wasn't like the most straightforward paper but it was a fairly straightforward one there weren't a lot of like super controversial decisions i don't know so um mm -hmm. I, it just i wasn't sure I, like if i wrote that up maybe it would be interesting i don't know i don't know if you have an opinion about that but um I think you're right that going, it would be too much of a chore, what you're talking about, like going back and asking people to remember. It's almost like, um, I mean, that's where having meeting minutes and things like that are really important so that if you want to go back and construct that, you don't have to rack your brain to remember every single detail, but you just literally have a record of it, like you're saying. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 And then, but I feel like that can be really interesting for people. Like, I do think having that narrative um, and presenting it as, you know, here is how, here was the process of making decisions for this paper would be really valuable for people. I mean, for everyone, people who are learning, people who are kind of you know, experienced and sort of have their set way of doing things in order for them to expand their horizons and think about the world from someone else's vantage point, you know? Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it, it sounds, it's, I can totally see why, uh, people don't do this. Right. Cause it seems tedious at the time. Well, it, you know, I, what inspired me were some of these, like, uh, I don't know if you've read any of these like business school case study type things where they, describe a company and a decision that the company had to make and you know mm -hmm. um totally and like often they they will like go and visit these companies for like weeks and they'll interview people and they'll ask them like what happened you know at this time and what were you thinking and you know who said what at what meeting or whatever you know and uh and so they really it's they really get into it and i think as a result it's like an extremely expensive process right because people have to go and interview people and it's like it's really time consuming um and so I think this this would also be time consuming because it would take time. I mean, it would it would you'd have to go back and remember things and talk to people and whatever. Yeah, totally. That's interesting. I, yeah, I mean, the biggest place where I've seen this um, in so, <laughs> I haven't read a lot of like business school textbooks. Haven't seen a lot of this, even though I've heard of these case studies before. Um, the, the place where I saw this um, articulated the most was the... Remember a while back I was talking about that design sprint? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so the design sprint book, I mean, again, these were people who were at... Um, I guess for, for people who didn't hear that episode, this is essentially a process for quickly prototyping some sort of experience. Um, and it's, it's a fairly... Um, 
it's a fairly prescriptive process where you have five days. It's a Monday through Friday. They kind of, they have activities you do like a brainstorm. I mean, essentially, I mean, not brainstorming actually very much, not that, but they have activities for, you know, doing design on your own, looking, interviewing experts, um, like doing design on your own, going through and voting on ideas, whipping up a prototype and then user testing it. Um, and so those, the people who ran that were venture capitalists. Um, they're like people from a venture capitalist fund at Google. And so they would go from company to company and facilitate this and therefore have an extremely detailed record about how decisions were made because <laughs> they were there recording it in order to like, develop this process, the design sprint process. Um, and so it was, it is really helpful to see that because, um, I mean, it's also helpful to see, it's helpful to see where people disagree and how they disagree. And the fact that it's kind of prescriptive how people disagree. <laughs> there's not, uh, there's not like a whole lot that's new under the sun in this. Right. Area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and seeing people disagree in a really healthy, structured way, I think, is valuable because then it teaches people that it doesn't have to be the end of the world. I'm kind of going off now, but <laughs> going off topic. For people who want to hear about the design sprint, actually, that was episode 48, and I'll put a link in. Actually, it was one of our. It was a very well received episode. Actually, I think there was a lot of interest in this idea. So. Yeah, I still I still am like jamming on that, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I know what that means. <laughs> well, I mean, so I I continue to have the same function at Stitch Fix that I had then, which is um, iterating on what sorts of data we ask clients. I'm not even sure I got into this in that episode, but um, I focus a lot on what data we ask clients. Um, and if there's new data that we should be asking that would be good for, you know, our algorithms and our product generally. And it, it's sort of, you can't just say this data is better. You have to have a reason why it's better. And you have to, you have to have some sort of hunch that it's going to be better. Hopefully empirical hunch, not just like out of nowhere. Um, and so when you're talking about a data science product, like there's all this downstream stuff, you know, like just because you collect really detailed information about someone's, you know, size doesn't mean that you've built any of the back end to use that information. And so in order for it to really be quote unquote better, it has to have the process and, it, and, and in order to have that up and running, you kind of need the data. So it's, it's just like an interesting problem to be in the middle of. Um, yeah, but it requires a lot of design thinking because you have to, be creative about, okay, if we go through the trouble to get this data, what sorts of things do you want to build rather than just like letting everyone run free? <laughs> like, I was going to say like most every other place <laughs> or do you just run free? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of data science is working on the data that's already there, in which case you can just run free and be like, yeah, like, we collect this and we have click logs and we have, you know, this information about products and whatever. And so we create this big machine learning engine for it. But if you're going through an expensive process to acquire more data, like you, you certainly want to know it's going to be helpful <laughs> before you do that whole process. And so that muscle is kind of an interest. Anyway, that's why I'm still thinking about design sprints because it's still design is still a really important part of data science. Actually, you know, when I was reading, preparing for this talk, I was reading a lot of these uh, disaster, like postmortem reports. Uh, like, like, so for example, like I was reading the, uh, you know, the Challenger space shuttle accident. Um, yeah. commission report and um and one of the findings that they had actually uh was that um that problems tended to be solved at the level where they occurred you know and so and so like for example the the whole problem with the challenger space shuttle is that like the the booster had this fault this o-ring that like you know didn't work at cold temperatures and there was like a two-hour discussion on the night before the launch between like the booster managers and like the contractor that built the booster and like and they and they basically long story short they they resolved the issue right mm -hmm. um and then but then they didn't like tell anyone about it <laughs> right yeah 
And um, I remember there was an interview with that guy who was still just totally guilt-ridden, the engineer. Oh yeah, the uh, it's uh, the contractor was his name, his name is name of the contractor is Thaikal, and I think I remember the name of the guy. But uh, um, it's um, yeah, I mean it's a classic case study now in engineering, I think. But um, it's one of those Wait, things. Wait, so where they like, resolved the issues? They resolved the issue in that they figured out that it wasn't going to perform at lower temperature. No, that no, no, no. Well, no, they resolved the issue in the sense that they decided that they were that it. They decided that it wasn't going to be a problem, right? I and see. that the launch could go forward. Now, there's a lot of like backstory there, obviously, because like basically the engineers at Thaikal, which is the contractor, they unanimously thought that <laughs> the launch should not go forward. Um, and that's this person that was guilt ridden was like, maybe I should have made the case more strongly, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the management basically overrode them. Um, so it's, um, but then like, and, and, and there's a, there's a comment, uh, in the, uh, commission. So the, one of the commissioners who was, you know, who was investigating the, um, the, the whole thing was saying, talking to this guy who was like the booster manager at NASA and how he didn't tell anyone that they had this two hour conversation about essentially whether the booster was going to explode. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so he didn't tell anyone at like the higher levels, like the launch controllers and things like that. And, um, right. and he was saying that, you know, like this guy who's like an Air Force general, he's like, you know, if I was flying an airplane and you just had a two hour conversation about whether the wing was going to fl- fall off or not, like I would probably just tell the pilot, you know, <laughs> just let him know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> even, if, even if you didn't think the wing was going to fall off, like just let him know that you had a two hour conversation about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but then, oh, I don't know. I mean, do you really feel that way about everything? No, not about everything, right? I can't be, right? Otherwise, there'd be <laughs> paralysis, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, that must be what they thought, that it was, you know, like, this isn't going to... I mean, I wonder what sort of probabilities they had in their head to go forward with it. If they're like, we are 99.5% sure that it's going to be fine, versus we're 80% sure it's going to be fine. Right. I mean, you can't have those kinds of probabilities. There's very little data, right? I mean, this was very early on in the shuttle program. There were only a few launches to go on. And so um, it's uh, one of the, I think, yeah, the issue is that like, you know, I think that it's trickier than it sounds because I think the, the, I think the commission finding basically is that like, you know, there's a trade-off between like telling, kind of passing up every problem and compartmentalizing problems, right? Um and you need, and I think their finding was basically like, well, that trade-off was in was not in the right, you know, balance, basically, right? Um, but then the question is, well, what is the right balance, right? And I think that's a, obviously a much harder question uh, because you don't want to pass up every single problem; nothing will ever get resolved, you know. So, yeah, I feel like doctors, like medical doctors, run into this a lot. Where um, I mean, I just remember having a conversation with a surgeon. Um, he was talking about, he was a someone who wanted to talk about every possibility with patients. And then some patients would just go to a different doctor who sounded more authoritarian and like, yep, this is going to be fine. And then it wouldn't be fine. They'd come back to get like it fixed, whatever the other doctor did. And it's like, if you present people with uncertainty, sometimes they really don't want that. And they, th- they, they like put it on you, the fact that there's uncertainty. But then the question there, if you're trying to figure out, well, what's the better way to go? Like, what's the right outcome? Like, I'm not entirely sure what the right outcome is there, you know? Yeah. Um, What would you measure as, like, the outcome? Is it just, like, the whether the person lives (laughs) or, or, yeah, I I mean, could be that or whether the person is satisfied, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's a good point because it's, like, (laughs) like, everyone in the Matrix is satisfied with life and that they are not thinking... (laughs) All. <laughs> that's true yeah <laughs> right except for i it's been so long since i've seen it so i guess maybe no it's a really good point it's like how do you balance kind of psychological distress from the quote-unquote right decision and, right and uh i know there's a, there's a yeah, lot of... and it'll be different for every person because some people want to they some people really want just like yep i just wanted a doctor to tell me it was gonna be fine and other people don't yeah right and then, and you, I think, as the doctor, need to gauge that, right? Like, it's your responsibility to to kind of figure that out, basically, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And subject to the constraint of doing no harm. Obviously. Well, yeah, yeah. There's always there's also that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
That's in, that's super interesting. That's funny because I, as much as I've been sort of evangelizing postmortems, I don't think I had thought carefully about this aspect of it before. Like who should be in the room and how do you make those judgment calls of who should know? Like who, not who should know, but it's there. There's the possibility of too many cooks, right? Or like stressing out management when they didn't need to be stressed out and that's like good managers have to rely on people only surfacing things like they have limited bandwidth. And so people only surfacing things that really matter. Right. You know, it's because, you know, when I ultimately when I, I read, I actually read this whole like, commission report. It was fascinating to me. And when you go through the timeline, like it's it's not like it's 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 not like it's obviously clear, like who was the person who made the mistake. You know what I mean? Like in terms of not telling someone or making this decision versus that, like, and, you know, there's many places along the timeline where you could say, oh, that person should have done this differently. Right. Mm-hmm. But and that would have prevented the launch. But it's not immediately clear, like, which one is the right one to, like, intervene on. You know, what I mean, like, like to pinpoint exactly where that problem occurred, you know. And ultimately, it comes down to like who has the ultimate responsibility. Like, it's easy in hindsight to be like, "Oh yeah, they should have just told the they should have told people higher up in the chain, and then the problem solved, right?" But it's it's not easy to make that call right in the moment, right? Totally, yeah. And it's easy. I feel like people want to have a simple solution where they're like, "Oh right." I mean, it's kind of like the victim blaming or whatever, where you just say you know, you should have done that and I would have done that. Therefore, I'll never be in this problem <laughs> that you right. just experienced. Right, and right. The reality is not so simple, right? Um, yeah. So, um... Wait, what does this have to do with data analysis again? <laughs> I, I don't remember, but... No, I had to do a little bit with the, with the talk that I gave because I kind of... One of the... Right. I actually talked about a few... I had some space examples in my talk just because, you know... I can't let a talk go by without some space. But uh, anyway, but <laughs> going, going, rewinding all the way back to what this is about, this is uh, the talk went really well, and I had a great visit at uh, at Weehai. So, uh, yay, and, uh, excellent! Met a lot of yeah. great people there, and they run the uh, Our Ladies, the Our Ladies Melbourne group here, actually. So, oh, cool, uh, awesome! It's nice to great. meet all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, our, our ladies all over the world. Yeah, Very exciting. So I have another bit of follow-up, which which um, relates to our last episode, where we discussed uh, the connections between intelligence analysts and uh, data scientists, mm-hmm. and we we kind of like half-heartedly put out a call that was like, if anyone out there is an intelligence analyst, you know, let us know. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, one of our listeners was an intelligence analyst. Yay! <laughs> I did my research by continuing to watch Homeland, just FYI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Jonathan uh, Lis- I said Lissick, um, he emailed and he said, um, he said, he, he said uh, it's a bit of a long email, so I'll condense it a little bit. He said he's currently a statistician working at a, as a data scientist, and, uh, but in, previously he was an intelligence analyst in the Air Force. Um, he, and he makes the caveat, he says this was 10 years ago, so... Some of this information may be out of doubt. I'm uh, sorry, out of date. Um, but I'm guessing probably not that out of date. <laughs> so ten years is, sounds like a long time, but it's not. Um, yeah, I, you don't hear about government uh, institutions ra- like radically changing their process in a ten-year time span. <laughs> so I'm just going to read his email here because I think it's pretty interesting. So he says. Um, I think it's first worth noting that the intelligence community is large and diverse. The recipients of briefings, reports, and other forms of dissemination are also diverse in rank, activity, and theater of operation. As an example, intelligence analysts exist in all branches of the military, Department of Defense, including the National Security Agency, um, Department of State, CIA, and elsewhere. Uh, Recipient of intelligence products include everyone from an army private to a fighter pilot to a four-star general to the president of the United States. Furthermore, the roles that an intelligent analyst can end up include being a librarian of classified material, to a software developer, to a signals analyst, etc. Um, if we break down an intelligence analyst into a set of core tasks, such as collecting, processing, and disseminating material, I do believe the job of an intelligence analyst is quite similar to a statistician. In particular, both jobs require being an arbiter of a set of facts and to provide context into how to understand these facts and tend to shy away from taking any positions. However, as with statisticians, some positions may break from this last... Sorry, yeah, some positions may break from this last point based on the role. 
uh, last part, so the last part here, it says, overall process of collecting, processing, and disseminating is also similar to the workflow of a statistician. You rarely are doing your own collecting, so you need to make the best of what you have to fill the needs of a particular analysis. The data can also be messy with lots of irrelevant data and sources of mixed confidence. Therefore, it requires a lot of munging to make something of value for a report or presentation. So, all right, so that's that's his email. I, I do really appreciate, I feel like he... What was it? Um, arbiter, arbiter, arbiter of a set of facts. That's it. Yeah, I really like that. that was, and it also strikes me as very um, like precise and Air Forcey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> no. It's I mean, the email is extremely clear. So whatever. I mean, I'm guessing he was a pretty good intelligence analyst because like everything is very clear and like precise and like well thought out. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, I, I think so. The full sentence is to be an arbiter of a set of facts and to provide context into how to understand these facts. I think that is like that's the nugget right there, right? Yeah, totally, totally. I yeah, I really like that summary. It's I'm so intrigued by this because I mean, I guess like people in the military specifically have they probably have such a different culture around decision-making than at a tech company, for example. I would, yeah, I would guess so, but I don't know. I not having done served in neither, neither of those organizations. Yeah. But like, I mean, just, you know, just from my layperson understanding of like making decisions on a battlefield or in a war situation, like, you know, you, you make decisions that you're trained to be capable of making life or death decisions on in a very tight time frame let's say yeah well i mean i think yeah i mean if you want to abstract this out a little bit i think you know there's they have to make both i think both organizations types of organizations have to make kind of tactical decisions right so mm-hmm. when he says like the army private or the fighter pilot is getting a briefing you know they have to make a decision about like today or like what am i going to do today or this minute or the next hour or whatever right um, whereas like the joint chiefs of staff or the president they're making decisions about the next 10 years right um mm-hmm. and so and right. similar like the ceo isn't making the decision about like what parameter you need to stick in your model right like she's making decisions about you know revenue five years from now or whatever right so um right it's yeah. uh you know so there's kind of tactical versus strategic types of decisions that i think are common to to all large organizations right yeah. I feel like I feel like in that context though, someone will be very clear. In some ways it seems like a refreshing context because I think someone will be pretty clear about okay, here's the details I want and here are the details I don't want. Like I don't I don't want to hear about like the various model fitting that you did or like how many times you cross validated this. Like Right. If you trust it, I need to trust, like, I trust you. And if you trust it, then I will trust it. But I do want to understand, like, it's like, you still have to calibrate to that, you know, what do people want to hear versus, but I I, I guess what I, what I'm saying again is like, I feel like in that context, people won't beat around the bush because they're like, they're really trained to make decisions in a precise way, like you're saying, um, and so where I've run into some issues around kind of people going back and forth on um, model details or going back and forth on various like statistical properties of something, I feel like that's sort of a shy way of saying that you don't want to make the decision that like the data is suggesting or something, you know, it's a little bit more, um, indirect. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously I have no idea though, because I'm just, it's like grass is greener, you know, in a situation where people are very, aren't afraid to ruffle feathers and are very precise about their decision making. But um, right. I, yeah, it's probably not quite so simple as that, but uh yeah. um but you know, I think the one of the things about something like the military is that it is a it's a quite a large bureaucracy, right? Um mm-hmm. and you know, much larger than probably any tech company. <laughs> well, or, it's also extremely hierarchical. Like it's, you know, hierarchy and following the person above you is like really baked in. Yeah, it's part of the culture, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
And from my homeland watching experiences. <laughs> yes. What did you learn this time? It seems like the intelligence agencies are also that way. <laughs> 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 or like maybe a little less so, but they they still fold into the military eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that? Do you think the intelligence agencies should just re- replace all their training courses with just like episodes of Homeland? Do you think that that probably work, right? Oh, oh, totally. Yeah, definitely. I think <laughs> that would be very helpful, both in what to do and also what not to do. Yes. Have you watched Homeland? I only watched the very first season. Yeah. Well, that's there's already some bad. <laughs> you see lots of bad decision making <laughs> yeah. in the first season. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it only gets worse from there, but. Um, yeah, no, it's it, w- it would be interesting because I think, I mean, I think so many tech companies, this is, I almost wish we had like someone who was experienced with different management philosophies because so many tech companies, Citrix is definitely one of them. They really want this like full stack ownership of a problem and they want people to, um, like there's this idea of democratizing, democratizing data or just, you know, anyone can come up with a, like an idea on the algorithms team. And so the difference between that and the military, where it's very much about handing off to a superior and then that person handing off to a superior, um, it, I mean, that it, of course, the role of data of an analyst in those contexts would be vastly different. Right. Yeah. I, but it's just, and it's, but it's interesting because like, can you, if like, what was the other sentence he had, like, like free from opinion well, it's a, um, understand, so provide context onto how to understand these facts and to shy away from taking any positions. Taking positions, that's right. Um, but it's, I mean, it's kind of the same with, I mean, this is like the age old question, like, can anyone be objective? Like, <laughs> like it, certainly it seems like in that context, you would need to, um, you would certainly need to um, try to be objective. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I think so. I don't think it's impossible. It's, it's. I don't even. I don't know what being purely objective even means. But I think. Uh, uh, but, but I mean, given the context that you're given the given the context that you that has been, you know, placed in front of you, you know, whatever the question the question being asked or whatnot, you know, then within those constraints, you, I think the idea is to be as objective as possible. I mean, I think the questions themselves are not objective, right? But given the questions, you know, you try to you know just provide the evidence as cleanly as possible i guess Mm -hmm. but then i wonder um if they do things like code review or if the generals like shop around their ideas (laughs) like like if they get multiple opinions you know what i mean like i wonder how how that would work well, they, they absolutely do that, right? Because um, so they have these like national intelligence estimates that they write up um, on major issues. So, for example, like the Iraq weapons of mass destruction was a national intelligence estimate. And um, and they go to all the different intelligence agencies and they say, what's your opinion? And they basically get their assessment from each agency. Um, and in the if for past types of decisions, you know, estimates like this, you know, all the, the some agencies are more, you know, feel strongly one way and some feel strongly a different way and all these opinions just kind of spill out onto the onto the assessment basically um and so some policymakers will so i think i think policymakers will sometimes go to different agencies knowing that okay these people support my view and so i'll get their assessment um and then use that as evidence you know for you know a future decision or something like that i mean so it's uh, it's definitely conceivable and that's where you had mentioned it a few episodes ago, the idea of like your, your network, um, not network exactly, but your, um, like the secure analysis thing, like, Oh yes. The network of trust to kind of like network of trust. And like, you know, then you're getting down to, yeah, like the president and how does that person make decisions and how does that person decide who would be the person they trust the most in that scenario to be right. And, it's, yeah, it's super interesting. I feel like there must be a business. <laughs> speaking of, we were talking about business schools earlier, and there must be like a business school decision making class. <laughs> well, I think if you look at um, 
business school training in some place like the so a lot of business schools use this like case method of training right where they have these case studies and they go through the case studies and then they have a discussion in class about and i think the the reason they the reason to take that kind of approach is to train people in decision make in making decisions right um and I think because like the the way the case studies are structured is always like here's some background, here's some data, here's the here's what people were thinking at the time, and then it always stops at like okay now what decision would you make? It's kind of like a choose your own adventure, you know. Um, and you and then so it doesn't it, and then it, it tells people what actually happened now, but but it's always a point in the case study where it's like here are the facts, here's what people thought, what would you, what do you think the company should have done at this point, or what do you think the company should do? Um, and so, and the, and the point is that you know, students would read the case study and then come to class and have a discussion about it. And I think the point is that you want to pr- get people to practice, you know, integrating information and then making decisions, right? Which is presumably what you know, executives or business people do, right? So yeah, no, exactly, um, yeah. I've always felt like we could have a little bit more of that, like in in our kind of training, you know, in in statistical and data science training. Um, but I, what I realized is that it's a, <laughs> it's really hard to set that up, you know, to um, to kind of create those kinds of uh, environments where you know, so like, so like writing up these case studies is hugely expensive, you know, and um, and so it's it's not an. It's, I think we can do it. It's just that it it requires a lot of resources, and it's sometimes easier to just teach people the central limit theorem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's quote unquote easier. <laughs> that's so that when you're saying that that you think people should have training in it, is it that you think because do you think that's the case because they're going to be decision makers? Or do you think that's the case because they need to present to decision makers? Well, there's two parts, I guess. There's multiple parts. I think partly because uh, a lot of data science is making decisions, right? I mean, you don't e- some, you don't even realize you're doing it sometimes, right? Oh yeah, totally. Um, all these decisions about little things like tuning parameters, all the way up to bigger things, kind of like well, like what data to include and stuff like that. But so there's that, right? There's and I think there's there could be some training along those lines. Um, but then there, but I guess I hadn't thought about this idea that like you're going to be talking to other people who are making decisions. Um, and, uh, and maybe you need to know something about that too. I don't, I hadn't thought about that, but. Well, that's why, again, the, what I like about this case study of the intelligence agencies, intelligence analysts is that I I hadn't really thought until Jonathan's email about the fact that the military does have this very, people are very clearly assigned a decision-making role and people fall into a hierarchy. Um, and so Again, like in that context, the fact that you would be presenting to a decision maker, that's like a very clear, that's a very clear role that you're playing. And you might craft your presentation in order to like, as if you would think about what you need to make a decision and then you would craft it based on that. So it would be hard not to have some idea of the decision the person will probably make because you're like, yeah, this is the evidence and um this is why I would need to make a decision and and yet somehow I have not made a decision magically but um but yeah I feel like I feel like even just training people that there's going to be ambiguity there (laughs) well yeah exactly I mean I think many people are unaware of that possibility exactly (laughs) yeah and then like training people that I mean this is where it's just like yeah in this in this type of role you're always going to be in a a central part of a decision making process whether you are the person or not um is unclear and if you had some idea of the different structures that would happen like oh yeah in this type of environment where it's very hierarchical, you you will very very rarely be the decision maker, but you will be presenting the evidence. Versus in this other environment, you will almost always be the decision maker. Um, And again, especially in my experience with tech, that can be extremely opaque. Um, And because it might be like, oh, your company has PMs, but the PMs don't have much power. Or, oh, your company has PMs and the PMs have a ton of power, but they kind of look the same on the surface. and so I feel like, yeah, some some training here would be helpful. 
Well, I'll tell you, you know, one place where they're going to have to make this, <laughs> one place where they ha- they will be the decision makers is in academia, right? And so exactly, um, yeah, that's what I was thinking about, like papers, yeah. Right. I mean, so they, in that case, they will most likely be the analyst and the decision maker. And so they'll have meetings with themselves all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that is something that is probably deserves some training. You know I mean, no. Yeah, no, totally. And actually, even you mentioning that, I think it can be really unclear between a PI and um, a graduate student who the decision maker is. Um or there's like a little power struggle going on there. <laughs> like, there, yeah, there could be. The teenager wants to show that he's his own man. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't have to follow dad's rules anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't, not, I'm not sure what we're talking about anymore. Yeah. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, but just like I mean, I don't know. Like it, it, this type of stuff causes so much ang- like angst in all these scenarios where i mean i guess this is just getting down to like really basic human psychology like do you feel like you have autonomy in your life yes or no right yeah (laughs) and like do you feel good about that but i do feel like clarity around there in this role particularly it can be extremely frustrating if you feel like you present an analysis and you think you're going to influence a decision and then you don't and I can't even tell you the number of times that I, I feel like I've talked to someone and said, like, yeah, it doesn't really sound like you were actually in any sort of position to influence that decision. Like, that was a, a strategic priority or that, you know, like people just not having the context about what sorts of decision needed to be made by whom in what moment. Um, so, yeah. And again, like, it seems like most of data science is about decision making, that's sort of the whole point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to thanks to Jonathan for his feedback. Yeah, that was really uh, great. Yeah, thanks and, for um, it. And we have, you know, we have the best listeners, so thanks to everyone. Um, yeah. And keep, and, keep, <laughs> and keep it coming. Uh, we'd always appreciate the feedback. Um, so uh, I want to talk about, well, there's two more things that I wanted to mention. One is uh, very quick. Did you know in R that there's a limit to how many packages you can load. <laughs> I didn't know that. How, what's the limit? I, you know, I don't know. I didn't know that either, but I was talking to someone at this, at, at the WeHi, this Institute, and they were saying that like, there's all, like there, there are ways that you can like max out the number of packages that are loadable. And then you get like an error. I, I have to like go look at the source code to see what that limit is because I've never heard of that before. Yeah. And there's so many teeny tiny packages these days. I, is it a raw number or is it like the amount of memory used or something more opaque? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I was going to, I didn't do my homework, so I didn't, I was going to look through the source code just to like look for a limit, but I didn't do that. So are you just like really excited? You get to look through source code. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's actually, uh, it's, uh, I, have, I didn't mean to talk about this, but I have a little like um, side project that I want to do. I don't think, I don't can't remember if I told you this, but I want to build old versions of R <laughs> he didn't tell me that. I did not. <laughs> no, and like run analyses on them to see. Well, if I don't different. know about run analyses, but I, you know, I cut like my goal. I want to build like our version one Yeah, I'm sure. Just shot this idea around. Eventually, someone will be like, "Oh yeah, my colleague <laughs> down the hall hasn't updated R in like <laughs> twenty years or like ten years, whatever it is." That would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I think you might be overthinking it. <laughs> but, <laughs> wait, but is this just for fun? Like, what's the point? Well, it's, uh, we'll talk about it later. Um, okay, but okay, it's, it's, it's in preparation for something else. I'll, we'll, okay, we'll, actually, cool. we'll probably talk about it on the podcast, but it's for later. But anyway, I'm thinking I'm going to have to use, like, virtual machines because, like, very old versions of R didn't build on the Mac, so... Um, mm. I'm, I'm going to need like mm-hmm. a Linux virtual machine and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's exciting. Well, that sounds like the type of project that I, I assume there's some huge payoff, but also I feel like this is the type of project you set up on sabbatical when you like really want to do something fun, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's more the latter, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, that's good. It's that's all good. Yeah. For. yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, I, 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 I digress. The, the actual thing I wanted to talk so I'm, I, I'm trying to write like an R package now on uh, like parallel programming. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, being the responsible software developer that I am, I was like, well, let's Google around to see if someone's already done this, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I had briefly, like, in the very, very recesses of my mind, thought that Revolution, the, the previously R company that was bought by Microsoft, um, did something like this. So they had, like, a parallel computing kind of suite or whatever. So I was like, all right, well, let me Google around, see if they've done this already. And um, so, and lo and behold, I am taken to Microsoft's website. You you remember Microsoft, right? The company. <laughs> of course. Okay. I still have yeah. I still have a soft spot in my heart. Really? <laughs> yeah. I actually didn't switch to Macs until uh, I went to Etsy. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I'm taken to their website, and there's all kinds of documents about the kind of the previous revolution r kind of system and now it's called something it's called revo scale r i think and there's like a whole suite of tools that they've built and of course you know they don't run on the mac but (laughs) it's not that it's not as bad as it sounds i mean i think these whole this whole suite of tools is designed to run in the cloud right and so it's either going to run on azure or it's going to run on some linux system right Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not really designed to be run on your little mat, your you know port, your laptop computer or something. But mm-hmm. um, right, right. Anyway, but I was looking through their code, and this is and, and you know they they have like a whole like ecosystem of tools, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That um, that I first of all I was completely unaware of, and mm-hmm. um, and it's like this. It's like a third like universe like you know there's like if there's like a tidy verse and there's base r then there's this whole like microsoft verse (laughs) (laughs) of like like, also like a different like different data structure world or just like a different kind of i guess what what is in the microsoft world that you're discussing it's like you know they have functions for manipulating data that use like non-standard evaluation they've got plotting tools they've Mm -hmm. got you know, just like, you know, like the tidyverse has dplyr and whatnot. Like they've got a whole suite of things like that. And, um, and, uh, they've got their own like file formats, uh, for, you know, like binary formats for storing data. And like, um, it's like, there's a whole thing over there. Like, it was like, <laughs> I think the only thing I want, my only point I want to make is that there's like a whole thing over there and I did not know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, I think if you, if you wanted to, I, so the, what, what makes it interesting to me is that I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it didn't look like there would be a lot of interoperability between, for example, like the tidyverse and this universe over here. Um, because the way the functions are designed, you know, it's very different. Um, and, right, right. uh, it's just different, you know, design basically. And, um, and they've got their own file formats, and so I don't know how interoperable they're. Like, you can't read their file format using other R functions. You know, they got to use their functions, and so, um, mm. and so it's like it's almost like you know you got to buy into like either the Google system or like the Google ecosystem or the Apple ecosystem. You know, right. <laughs> it's like you yeah. can't mix and you can only mix and match to a certain degree, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. That may be a poor characterization, given how unfamiliar I am with the Microsoft world. But I think it's. Um, I don't know. I was just fascinated. It seems to me that like the Microsoft ecosystem is very much about kind of cl- the cloud computing, you know, yeah, approach. Totally. And they're like, not building things for the, your yeah. Yeah, plugging into Azure, Azure, Azure. I'm not sure. I call it Azure. <laughs> yeah, like plugging into that, and then I mean, uh, David Smith, uh, who is really active in the community um, at conferences a ton, um, and has been with Revolution for a, a long time. Uh, like before the move to Microsoft and then after, um, I know he's demoed things, uh, at various, at various conferences and like, yeah, like being able to read into Excel and stuff or not read into Excel, but like, like bring in results into Excel. I'm not totally, I wasn't totally clear on how it was working, but it seemed kind of magical. (laughs) It's like, um, like having a backend that feeds into, into Excel. Um, but yeah, it is, it's far, it, I think probably what you're running into and me too a little bit is that it is, it's probably much more in the land of, 
um, larger corporations that are built on a Microsoft ecosystem. Uh, and that would definitely not include academics <laughs> who are like spinning up their own Linux boxes to run R 1.0. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, Something to be clear, tells me that's not on their radar. <laughs> it's like an important thing. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of cloud activity happening in academia. And a lot, most, I think, to my experience, most academics use Amazon. Um, but there's no reason why they couldn't, I think, you know, use a different cloud provider. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so I, I, my sense is that this Microsoft's verse um, is largely distinct from say like the tidyverse. I think like it's not it doesn't seem like it's super convenient to use if you're just like the like a lone analyst working on your computer by yourself, right? Like it mm-hmm. it, it didn't seem like it was designed for that kind of setup. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's not clear to me that I mean it, it, I think the idea of choosing between one ecosystem and the other is maybe not as big of a deal just because like you have to be in a very specific set of situation I think to use the Microsoft kind of tools. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, it'd be interesting to hear feedback from listeners if they have used this world or ingrained I, in this world. However, I yeah. don't know what the right word, yeah, the right sufficiently personal word is. for Ensconced, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> for what are otherwise like uh, like somewhat dry decisions to an outside observer. But right. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know if David Smith listens to the to the podcast, but he's probably like he does. I just saw him at Day to Day Texas, and he said he started listening. So <laughs> he's probably throwing his phone into the sidewalk at this point. But <laughs> yeah, no, he's like after all this time. No, it'd be great to hear from him <laughs> specific responses to our talking points. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so the, the, anyway, just to draw the story to an end, the the funny thing is that like. So the, I was trying to um, in building this, trying to build this package. What I what I noticed is that they, they have exactly what I play. They do. They have tools for doing exactly what I um, wanted to do. Um, yeah. But in terms of the parallel programming environment, but I um, it was it was tricky because I think I just I wanted to build a system that would basically run on very kind of weird the weird kind of you know r1.0 academic setups that we always had we always had yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it seemed like their code i don't know I, it, it didn't seem like i could very easily adapt that to you know my setup so anyway i may have to write something from scratch anyway but yeah no i actually now that you're saying that i think i have seen this demoed at one of the conferences like perhaps earl or a similar conference and i had the same reaction where i i, I mean in some ways, it's like one of those situations where, yeah, if like <laughs> if if you're in an organization that has bought into one sort of suite of proprietary tools that have open source extensions or whatever, then life is easier sometimes when you have like, <laughs> versus like doing it all yourself. But obviously, there's a little bit of a do yourself do it yourself spirit in uh, in the average data scientist. So, yeah, well, there's always this question of like, is it going to take longer for me to like figure out how to adapt this thing to my needs or is it going to take longer for me to just write it from scratch? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, totally. and, so, it, and so it's just it's one of those trade offs. But um, yeah, you need like dev tools for parallel processing. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like I don't know. It might be a bit of a niche market, but uh. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what is our if not if not niche? <laughs> Like people uh, catering to extremely niche markets, like <laughs> fair enough, yeah. <laughs> um, so I had one more question I want to ask you. Sure. And it is, believe it or not, it is data related. Oh, um, or data science related, I should say. So you know, like if let's say I watch a movie, right, and mm-hmm. uh, and you haven't seen the movie yet, mm-hmm. um, and you and so i go to you and i say and you let's say you really do want to watch the movie but i go to you and i say i really hated this movie okay mm-hmm. do you consider that to be a spoiler <laughs> um yeah actually actually my boyfriend very much so considers that a spoiler so he doesn't read any reviews or anything before seeing movies and so uh, why do you think that is? We actually talked about this extensively at Christmas. <laughs> <with> my <laughs> dad and brother. 
there's strong opinions on both sides. Wait, so there, were, wait, were there people who believed that it was not a spoiler? Yeah, I was one of the people who was like, of course I read reviews before I go. Like, I okay. want to make sure that I'm setting my time in a good movie. Um, and his attitude... Hold on, I'm not talking yeah. about reading reviews. I'm just saying the mere fact, just the one piece of information that a person that you know liked it or not. Yeah. Well, no, but in, I mean, so yeah, maybe not even reading the reviews, but seeing the Roger Ebert thumbs up, thumbs down... That, for example, would be like there's a lot of information embedded in this like trusted network, whatever. You know, this person has taste that I like and they liked it, therefore I will like it. And then you go in with like a biased, you go in with like a biased feeling <laughs> or expectation. <laughs> pre- maybe. You have a prior, you have an informed prior for the movie. And so it's not exactly, I mean, it is kind of a spoiler in that it is somewhat altered what would have otherwise been a completely your complete personal reaction because now you're like strained from a prior but don't you but don't you think that if a random person like that you had never met or seen before walked up to you on the street and said i love the last jedi or whatever like would that have as much of an influence on you as if like your brother said that he loved it yeah, no, it wouldn't, but you would have things like what they're wearing, what they look like, how yeah. old they are. Like, That's you would true. have all these things. Yeah. So, if it was like a random, a random name on the internet that was like Twitter user 45529 with an egg, you know, profile pic, except for it's not eggs anymore then that would have the least information embedded possible. <laughs> so I think so what that tells me is that the, the data, so the data that the person gives you is the yes or no, liked it or not, right? Yeah. But that data has essentially zero value, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it's, it has everything to do with like who's delivering that data, right? Yeah, totally. So anyway, I thought it was a good metaphor for like data versus prior versus context. Um, yeah. And how all these things kind of mixed mixed together. I do yeah. like it. Good good work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could feel you patting me on the head right now. Yeah. <laughs> good, good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, I really, I, I like that a lot, actually. It's a really good way of communicating that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right I'll, i will be borrowing that with credit of course. <laughs> have yeah. you seen the last jedi i haven't i've i i think we discuss it's, it's amazing we i remember talking about this on the podcast so it's been that long since the last movie came out and i was so disappointed that this time i just haven't even i haven't even tried you were disappointed in the last movie yeah. Remember yeah. we discussed it. Yeah. Yes, I, was I do remember that. It, so. Yeah. Yeah. I will not tell you my opinion of the of the Last Jedi then. Yeah, I know my brother's opinion though. He's like the uh, person. He's really into movies, so I his he has encyclopedic knowledge of the movie industry. <laughs> so <laughs> I very much trust his opinion. Is know? he into Star Wars per se? Yeah, yeah. Although you know, actually now that I say this, I actually don't I mean I think I I remember him kind of giving me <laughs> giving me a hard time about not having seen it yet, and I think he just enjoys the process of seeing a Star Wars movie. But I I didn't get a lot of like fine grained opinion about like the specifics. But I also know that he liked the last one, so oh okay yeah we're already far apart, you know. <laughs> You're never gonna get together on that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You know, sadly, the la- the 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 Force Awakens was like it was literally the last movie I saw. I think <laughs> in in the theater. In the theater, we've discussed every. Well, I better see it so we can discuss the ne- like we can discuss all movies you've seen. <laughs> well, it's so funny because like my wife and I had this experience. We're like, oh, we're in the movie theater again. It's like the last time we were in the movie theater, we were watching Star Wars <laughs> again. Right? It was like it, it was so. You're like it's the so target weird. demographic, though. Like, <laughs> totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I am the. In, I know I'm a little bit on the young side. Mm-hmm. How uh, old were you when they were coming out? If you well, because like saying. the first Star Wars movie came out in '77, which so which is the so I'm a little on the young side, but I think. um it's it, it people in their like mid to late 40s it's like in the sweet spot i think 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm just, I'm over it. I'm over trying too hard, you know? I just want to, I feel like it just has become such a thing that it's like, um, it, it feels like, I think it's just my hipster side kind of like coming out where it's, <laughs> it's too much of a production now. Yeah. You know what kind of ruins it is that like, is the knowledge that like there is going to be an infinite number of Star Wars movies for an infinite amount of time, basically. No, exactly. It's like, it's like you are being like, like the fact that this is the only movie that you've been going to, <laughs> the only franchise, is that's what they know, and they're they're exploiting that. You know? I know. I'm just like they're just they're picking me clean right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Well, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I should I should try to like stir the emotions that were once there. But anyway. Very good analogy <laughs> to get back to the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, um, no, I like it a lot. Uh, but then there is this fundamental, like, there are two camps, even with or without context, you know. Some people, even with all the context, want someone to tell them a movie spoiler. Or uh, not a movie spoiler, but their movie opinion versus others really do not. I mean, before seeing it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, the amount of information embedded with, like, in the context, there's still two distinct decisions. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's not like everyone's like, oh, yeah, I really want that. And then by the end, they're like, well, I guess that doesn't have much. Yeah, anyway, yeah. that's just the aside. But I guess you're right. It works in either scenario. I think I'm more like you, but maybe even more extreme. Like I, I don't mind reading reviews, but I'll I'll often like read the plot, like the Wikipedia page before I see a movie. <laughs> really? Oh yeah, like it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, but so then, what do you do when you're watching the movie? What's like the experience you want? Well, okay. The exception is like a movie that has like is, that is known to have like an obvious twist. You know, for example. Um, yeah. Then I'll hold I'll hold off on that. But I think I don't know. To me, it's just like it's like the visual. The, it's like the whole visual, audio, everything, and like and just watching the acting experience. You know, like the plot. I think is only one small piece. Yeah. No. I think I think that sounds true. I think what's hard is that the I what's hard to think about is that the person who's creating the movie wants to elicit emotions via the story and you kind of like hinder that right i don't know i think like a good story like most movies are like fairly predictable yeah, <laughs> right no, and totally so like yeah. even if you i think a good movie you know what's going to happen but you still like are sitting there like watching waiting for it to happen you know um yeah and, yeah. and so like i don't think the plot ruins it in the sense that a good like a truly good movie you want to see how it happens you know in a sense yeah uh huh. and yeah no that's super interesting so i mean i have definitely done what you've done many times so <laughs> I... <laughs> well sometimes if you feel like a movie's not really that great you, you kind of like like how does this how does this damn thing end like is it worth watching it to the, you know like <laughs> Right, yeah. It's like it's like gonna have an interesting. Like, gonna... I did that with um, Big Little Lies, that HBO series. Oh um, yeah, yeah. I yeah, seen that. I had read it. I saw the ads and I read the whole plot on Wikipedia way before. And then I was and I was not phased by that at all until I realized in the last episode how much they were playing up the mystery of it. And I was oh, like, oh, uh -huh. there was a whole experience of a mystery here that I did not have, but I liked it for all these other reasons. So it was it was just sort of uh, I did have the experience you're talking about where I was like, you know, I really enjoyed like the acting and the visuals and, you know, the com like complex characters or whatever. But um, the whole like murder mystery part of it i was like i actually wouldn't have been into that <laughs> it felt kind of like cheap compared to the other stuff <laughs> um anyway. i mean it's kind of like watching a movie twice like why why would you watch a movie twice right if you know it's gonna happen yeah. uh, so i don't know yeah so that the world will be predictable <laughs> i actually i had to I had to do that with the first season of Homeland. Actually, I'm like, it's, when I watched like the first two episodes of the first season, I'm like, I need to know how this thing ends. <laughs> oh, really? 
Yeah. Oh no. Okay, that is too far. That's... Really? <laughs> yeah, because that's like the whole fun of it is these massive plot twists, you know, all over the place. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it still is great acting, and there's still a lot. Like, there's still really cool stuff going on. But oh my god, like the the plot twists are some of the funnest parts. <laughs> I guess I, I didn't experience it the way it was meant to be experienced. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's new seasons still, so you haven't spoiled everything. That's true, yeah. How, uh, are they, have you seen them all? No, no. I'm on season four. Okay, but you'd recommend two through four? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> really good. Okay. Get it Get it started. Next sabbatical experience. <laughs> <laughs> catch up on homeland now i really want to watch one tonight but i can't uh, i feel like we're we're veering from podcast content at this point oh yeah, oh, yeah. i think now we're just uh, we're in the outtakes now yeah totally i'm like oh i really want to watch homeland now yeah All right. 